So if you pray with me, then we'll, we'll get going. Father, we thank you uh, that you created us all, men and women, and you've gifted us and called us to do your work in every single aspect of life. And Lord, as we begin this study, may you begin to uh, open our eyes to the ways that you have gifted and called each one of us uh, to complete your work. In your name we pray, amen. Revolutions are always started very, very small. It's like a seed, the very tiny seed gets put in there and then it goes away for a while and then all of a sudden the water hits it and the the seed grows and grows. The American Revolution was probably started by a group, well it was, started by a group of people who said, we're not going to accept this anymore. Revolutions start very small in the shadows. It's usually one act of defiance and that act of defiance encourages other people to stand up and say, yeah, you're right, this isn't right. We don't want taxation without representation. We want to stand up for this and the small little backroom decision to resist becomes a large scale movement that births countries. So today, we look at, at these two characters in Exodus 1 that started a revolution, Shifra and Pua. Names which I'm sure... I, Heck, I have a master's degree in this stuff, and I had to go, who? We, we, we skim over them because we want to get to Moses, we want to get to the Red Sea, we want to get to the plagues. But these two women were the ones that sowed the seeds for the Exodus to happen. They had an incredible story of courage. And through their story, we see how God uses these minor characters for major impact throughout the world. These women, their, their names are, are significant. Pua means splendid in Hebrew. Shifra means brightness. And they're the ones that are named in the text. If you look closely, the king of Egypt is never named. So you have brightness and splendid contrasted with a no name. You just know them by their title. You have brightness and light competing with darkness and evil. They're midwives the word for, in Hebrew for midwife means to bring forth life. They have life in them. They bring life into the world. And what we see of the king is one who brings death. But how did they get to this point in Exodus? Here's what's happening in Exodus 1. There's a long time between the closing in Genesis 50 and then the first words of Exodus 1. There's about 400 years or so. In the book of Genesis, we end with Joseph and his family taking up residence in Egypt. They were being saved or spared from the famine that was, having, that was happening where they were from. This is something that God foresaw happening, or God said this was going to happen, that the people of Israel, Abraham's descendants, would, would take shelter in Egypt for 400 years. So this is that time that God talked about with Abraham back in Genesis 26 or something like that. So then they're, they're there, and then they keep growing. It was Joseph's family and all 70 of them, his 11 brothers, and then 70 of their workers and immediate family members. That's all there were. Then we open the book in, 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 uh, in Exodus, and now those 70 people have grown into a full land. In Exodus 1.6, it says, Now Joseph and all of his brothers and all that generation died. But the Israelites were exceedingly fruitful. They multiplied greatly, increased in numbers, and became so numerous that the land was full of them. 
These verses are trying to catch us up real quick on what's been happening in that time. It's been 400 years. Joseph, who saved Egypt from the famine, he's been forgotten about. There's a new king, still not named, a new king on the throne. He comes and sees this vast group of people that he has no idea where they came from, and he sees them as a threat. In verse 8 of Exodus chapter 1, a new king whom Joseph meant nothing came to power. He said, look, these Israelites have become too numerous for us. Come, we must deal shrewdly with them, or they will become even more numerous, and if a war breaks out, they'll join our enemies, fight against us, and, and leave the country. So he devised the plan. We have to stop this force. It's rooted in fear. He doesn't like them. He's afraid of what they might do. So he says, here's how we stop them. We give them forced labor. We make them slaves. We put a quota on them. What he's doing is stripping away their humanity. They're just the worker bees. They don't mean anything to us. But it didn't work. The people of Israel grew and grew, and it, the, the slavery tactic didn't stop its growth, their growth. And so he has another plan. This time it's a little bit more gruesome. This is where our, our friends Shifra and Pua come in. They represent a force of life that's going to contrast the king's uh, idea for death. And through these women, we see the story of Christ embodied Through these women, we see the story of our calling, and we catch a glimpse of three aspects of our calling that we can learn from them. The first aspect that we need to talk about in their calling that we see in ours is they had a fear of God. When the king's plan to slow down the Israelites' growth didn't work, it wasn't a far stretch for him to say, now let's make them, let's, let's get rid of them. Let's not just make them slaves, let's wipe them out completely. Egyptians did not like Israelites. It was there. They thought they were dirty. They thought they were weird. They didn't like shepherds. In fact, in Genesis 46, when Joseph is bringing his family in, he says, very, he says to them, when Pharaoh calls you, 46:33, when Pharaoh calls you in and asks you, what is your occupation? You should answer, you are your servants and you tend livestock from our boyhood on just as our fathers did. Then you'll be allowed to settle in the region of Goshen, for shepherds are detestable to the Egyptians. There's a problem with this. Israelites were were shepherds. They were shepherds, and so then they're detestable to the Egyptians. So you have a difference there. They're weird. We don't like them. They work with sheep. Sheep are detestable. Therefore, they're almost as if they're unclean. There's a tribal difference that we see. They're not Egyptian. They're an outsider. So you have the work they do. You have their tribe. And then there's the cultural difference. They're just different from us. And once you've established those, you make them slaves. There's the economic difference. And now you have all these differences. You've made them subhuman. And it's not, very, it's not a big step from that point for the pharaoh or the king to say, hey, what he does next. He says to the midwives, when you, when you are helping the Hebrew women give birth and you're on the delivery stool, if you see that it's a boy, kill him. If it's a girl, let them live. He's lessened their humanity more and more and more to finally he thinks you should just kill their baby because they don't even matter. So the, Isra- the, the, the Israelite midwives, they stand up to him. 
And they say, this is not going to happen. Shifra and Puha, the Midrash said that these women were large, were, were, were in charge of a large midwifery guild. Is that how you say it? Midwifery? One of those. They were in charge of a whole bunch of other midwives. In Egyptian culture, a midwife had these supernatural powers. The infant mortality rate for babies then was very high, but a midwife can help save the life of the baby. And so when the baby was born, these women were thought by the Egyptians and some of the Israelites that they were given God-given abilities to keep babies alive. So they were a respected class. That's why these two Israelite women were having an audience with the king. They were both respected. The king would have respected of them. So they were divinely gifted with the force of life. And the king is politically gifted with the force of death. And now they're faced with the question, do we obey the king or do we obey God? The midwives, however, in verse 17, feared God. They did not do what the king of Egypt had told them to do. They let the boys live. They feared God. This is the first time in Exodus that we see the word God named. The phrase fear God is used over and over in scripture. It's used in Proverbs 1.7, Proverbs 9.10. It's used in Leviticus 19.14 and Leviticus 19.32 as the beginning of wisdom and where our ethical choices of right and wrong come from. In the New Testament, in 2 Corinthians, it's used here in 2 Corinthians 7.1. Because we have these promises, dear friends, let us cleanse ourselves from everything that can defile us, our, bo- our body, our sp- or spirit. Let us work towards complete holiness because we fear God. In those days, to care for people would be to care for the ones who are on the margins, to care for the ones who can't care for themselves. The Hebrew word for fear is the word yare. And here it's more about awe and respect than it is about shame and dread. It's not about being afraid of somebody. It's more about having an awe of somebody. That's what drives the obedience. That's what drives the honor. Fear is what you awe. And it's not an awe. That's so cute. It's an awe like, wow, this is awesome. Fear is what they awed. They're captivated by it. It's what they respected and what they worshiped. In Genesis 20, verse 11, he, Abraham warns his people about, about those other people who don't have a fear of God, who have no respect, who have no reverence in them. He says to stay away from them. So you, here you have Shifra and Pua. They're faced toe-to-toe with the king who's telling them to do something that their very career and calling is absolutely against. They bring life, and the king is saying, kill life. And they're faced with a decision. But the text said they feared God, which is interesting, because this is some 80 to 100 years before the Ten Commandments. So how did they fear God? They knew, I think, they knew from where they came from. They knew that they were Israelites. They knew that they came from the line of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. They knew that God had called them. And they had this divine awareness that the way they lived was different than the way the people of Egypt lived. And then they acted accordingly. 
you could say that they feared God, and that fear came because they knew whose story they belonged. The midwives had a fear of God and a respect and awe of them that it changed the way they lived. They saw God. They saw his power. They did not want to do anything to cross that power. They belonged to him. Have any of you ever learned how to surf? I've, I've asked you this before. You and me. Those two guys. Okay. And you. First, and you. Yes. We're growing. I'm from California. I surfed a lot. First rule of surfing. Do you know it? Catch the wave, she says. Yes. Yeah. When I was first learning, my brothers were very mean to me. I'm the youngest. And so they, uh, they wanted to get rid of me. I felt like Joseph, for those of you who know the story. Um, and so they decided to take me surfing. My mom's only rule was bring Brad back. And as we're surfing, it's, it's a big day in Southern California for waves. It's like, there's a hurricane coming, and it's large. And this is my brother's... Uh, 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 advice. Don't take your eyes off the ocean. Thanks, Scott. I'll do that. I'm a junior higher paddling out, but he was right. Don't take your eyes off the ocean. Don't take the ocean lightly, is what he should have said. The waves might seem small or smaller that day than they were the other big days. To me, it was huge. But he said the power, what he meant was the power is still there. Respect the ocean. Never take your eyes off of it. Know the power that it happens. The moment, I've seen this surfing, the moment that people take the ocean lightly and don't think that the wave has power, they get hurt. They go under the water for a long time and they come up gasping for air. My, uh, we had a family friend out from Michigan. This was a while ago and I, I don't even think she's around to hear this so I can tell it. Uh, she, uh, she didn't take the ocean very seriously. She didn't understand the power that it had. And so it was another summer day, and we get the hurricane swells, and she's standing there, and she thought it'd be fun to let the water hit her, which is usually a fun idea. Not that day. The water came, swept her legs out, and off she goes out in the rip curl, the riptide. She forgot to take the ocean seriously. She didn't realize the power of it. She didn't fear it. She didn't hold it in awe. She was fine. We got her out. She walked away wet, but and sandy. But she forgot to take the ocean seriously. She didn't hold it in awe. So what the awe, the fear that these women had for God was the same thing. This is the God we worship. This is the God whose laws we want to obey. And if this God is calling forth life at every single chance he can, then we want to join in with him. And we're going to fear that rather than fearing Pharaoh or the king of Egypt. The same is true with us. We might be faced with decisions. You're faced with a dilemma. Do I follow this way or do I follow the way that I know is right? Do I follow the way that God calls us to live? Which way do I go? Do I fear God or do I fear the employer? Do I fear the government? Do I fear my neighbor? Which one do you hold in higher esteem? Which one do you fear most? The Hebrew women feared God. And it led, and it, and it led them to, to live through their callings. They feared God. And that leaves us the second aspect. They had a courageous disobedience. They had the fear of God. And then they courageously disobeyed. I wish when I disobeyed, my parents saw it as courageous. Instead, they saw it as rebellion. 
In verse 17, the midwives feared God and did not do what the king had told them. And they let the boys live. They disobeyed their orders. King says this, okay, king, they go away and they don't do it. It was in direct conflict with what the status quo was. This meant that following God for them was a direct opposition to the law of the land. Now, here's the trap that we tend to fall into. When I say we, I mean me as well. Just because the government says something illegal, something is legal, doesn't mean that it's right. Just because something's okay and condoned doesn't mean that it's okay. In essence, we have allowed culture of politicians to raise the bar of what we think is permissible in society, and it's infiltrated the church. We put politicians and policies above what we think of what, the, what we hear from God. We give it the political supremacy or ethical supremacy. In other words, we perhaps don't see politicians as God as Egyptians and the Romans do, but sometimes we fear them more than we fear our God. We fear the lawmaker and the laws more than we obey the call that we have from God. We've messed up some priorities The temptation is to have allegiance to a political party while sometimes we take that allegiance to a political party without even thinking about what it lands with God's party and where scripture lies with what he says. And it leads us with the question, which way do we follow? Who do we go with? Who's right? It's not a question that it's easy to answer. It's not the first time that we've had to ask this question. In the book of Daniel, You have a man who was told not to pray. They wrote a law specifically for him. Don't you dare pray anymore. So what's he do? He goes into his closet, shuts the door behind him, and prays. Then he found out that he was was praying. Later in Daniel, you have four people. He's one of them who were told to bow down and worship the king. And they said, nah, we're not going to do it. So when everyone else took a knee, he stood tall. He and his friends stood tall. In the New Testament, you have Peter and Paul who said that that they were going to preach Christ and obey man's laws instead of God's. In Paul's writing, the simple phrase, Jesus is Lord, was a political phrase that said, Caesar, the ruling power, isn't. And they took a stand. These stances aren't without their consequences. Both Peter and Paul saw God move in mighty ways, but they were both imprisoned. Daniel was thrown into the lion's den. The lions didn't eat him, but he was still thrown in there. Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego, they were thrown into a furnace, yet they emerged. But in every single one of those those examples, they had to make a choice. Do I follow what we fear most, God, or do I follow what the crowd is saying? Do I go along with the powers of the day? Sifra and Puha decide to disobey, and to make even matters more complicated... They lie about it, is what they say. The king summoned them. We don't know how long this was. There's not timestamps. I wish there was. They said, why have you done this? Why have you let the boys live? The, the midwives answered Pharaoh, Hebrew women are not like Egyptian women. They are vigorous and give birth before the midwives arrive. I don't know what that would be like as a woman giving birth, but that sounds terrible. Give birth before the doctor gets there. I guess that's like giving birth before the, uh, the pain medicine goes in. But they, they give birth fast. What they're doing is they're playing on Pharaoh's biases. They're saying these Hebrew women 
aren't normal like normal women. They're animalistic. They just have babies before we can get there. And the king believes them. Oh, since they're subhuman, yeah, I get it. All right, that makes sense. But they, they disobeyed. And then they were blessed for their disobedience. In this instance, it raises the question, is it okay to lie? Is it okay to disobey? History is full of examples of individuals who disobeyed or lied to follow God's way. There's a story of Booker T. Washington, the famous African-American leader, who lied to the police and saved a group of men from being lynched. Jan Geis lied to the German soldiers about the Frank family living upstairs. There's so many examples to go through, but each one boils down to the courageous disobedience that is rooted in the fear of God rather than the fear of the authorities. Romans 13 says to revere authorities, and it's your way of revering God. But when those authorities are requiring you to disobey what you know what God says is right, then I say, as as well as many others, all bets are off. You give God what he deserves. You give government what they deserve. And sometimes this means flying right in the face of what they're telling you. And sometimes this will mean punishment. But God honors this stance because his laws are higher. And in the end of this chapter, the midwives, because they feared God, he gave them families of their own. Some midwives were often barren women. They didn't have kids. And so a way that God shows that they were blessed is he gave them their families. This, this disobedience was rewarded. But when we disobey, and sometimes we wish our disobedience was rewarded, but when we disobey, it's usually for our own gain. It's usually for our own pleasure or it's our own rebellion. It's not for a higher law or a higher authority. They were given families. Their defiance was because of their fear of God, not a selfish motive. And so they were blessed. Their disobedience led to the liberation of Israel. It brings up a wide-ranging and extremely delicate line of topics, but if we're being true to the text and what's happening today, then it should, we have to look at these women as disobeying the king in order to bring life. God honors human life, all of it, which for us means that if we're supposed to honor God, then we're supposed to honor every single human life, not just the lives we want. This explicitly means life both inside and outside of the womb, the lives that are sleeping on the streets, as well as the lives that are sleeping in the mansions next door, the lives of those we agree with, the lives of those we differ from, the lives in our country and the lives outside of our country and the lives trying to get into our country. God honors human life, and there's not a, 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 not a way out to wiggle from there. There's no way out from that statement. We like to tie these choices to politics and policies, but the choice to honor life is beyond politics. It's beyond party lines. It's beyond who's in authority. It's not a political statement to say that God honors life. That's what we always boil it down to. It's a gospel statement. It's a theological statement. God honors life. And when we look at that statement, it turns the question, whose life do we honor? Do we honor or whose, and whose laws do we honor? 
Do we honor the God who says, I honor all human life? Or do we honor the laws that say, eh, some do, some don't. And they're not always laws. Sometimes they're just opinions. Do we honor life or do we not? Every time it comes down to the same question that these women faced. Whose story do you belong to? And when faced with an ethical dilemma, when faced with a choice, that's what it comes down to. Where do you belong? What story are you living into? This is, where this is how they made the decision. Not every single choice we have is clearly spelled out in Scripture. I wish it was. It'd make everything so much easier. Sometimes it's gray, sometimes it's foggy, and there's room for disagreement, and that's fine. It's not always clear which ones we should follow and which laws. But that doesn't mean we don't know how to act. It doesn't mean that we abandon everything. It doesn't mean that, that we just go along with whatever someone else said. The truth is we know whose story we belong to. We belong to a God that honors life. And that's what we're called to. And that's what these women did. In the face of opposition, these brave and courageous women were called to honor the lives that they did. These women knew that what God was about. God's about life. And they followed him. This means that we are too about life. It means that we are about mercy. It means that we're for the vulnerable. We stand with the weak. We stand to help the addicted. For them and for us, mercy matters. Mercy is a theological issue, but all theology is personal. We are called to love God and love others. All theology is also relational. Our theology and our practice flows from those principles. We have kings in our lives that will tell us what to do. And sometimes these kings will even act like gods. And then we have to figure out which God do we follow in our lives. Our allegiance is to the real God, not to the imposter God of tribalism, partisanism, materialism, consumerism that that rule our day. We have a higher calling. And these women give us an example to follow. They feared God. They obeyed God first and foremost. That awe and respect led them to disobey courageously. And it led them to the final aspect of our calling that we see. They had solidarity with the most vulnerable. In the Exodus one twenty, God was kind to the midwives, and the people increased, and they became more numerous. And the midwives feared God, and he gave them families of their own. The actions of Shifra and Puah are in line with the very character of God that were shown in Exodus and that were shown throughout Scripture. The king of Egypt's insistence was death. God's insistence is life, to bring life wherever it goes. And sometimes it looks, when we look around us, it seems like death is winning. But from where death is winning is where God begins to work his mighty works of power. It seems like death is winning because here the the king doesn't just stop and say, well, they give birth real fast. He moves on. He says, if there's a child under the age of two, throw it in the river. He keeps going. He gets more and more brutal. But these women sowed the seeds of courage that grew and grew and grew. And in the face of the king's orders, it wasn't only them that rebelled. It turned out to be a lot more women that rebelled. And there was one, Yaqved, Moses' mom, who rebelled. She hid Moses for three months. And then, instead of throwing Moses in the river, made a basket, 
put Moses in there. The very river where the babies were drowned was the river that Moses was floating on top of. And then Moses finds himself at the foot of the king of Egypt's daughter. King of Egypt's daughter takes in the child, nurses or brings him in, and then finds a nurse or or a, a, a nanny to take care of them. Brokers a deal with Moses's sister. Moses's sister says, "I know a, nur- a a wet nurse that can breastfeed this child." Didn't tell her that it was the mother. How convenient! And Moses was raised in the king's house the very seeds of disobedience because they knew what kind of God they served sowed the seed that gave forth Moses that led to the Exodus. Psalm 1017 Psalm says this, you, Lord, hear the desire of the afflicted. You encourage them. You listen to their cry. You defend the fatherless and the oppressed so that the mere earthly mortals will never again strike terror. God hears the cry of the afflicted. God hears the cry of the vulnerable. Why? Because God honors life. And when we hear the same thing that God hears, we are stepping in line with the very steps of our God. Moses learns this. In Exodus 3, he goes, he's standing at the burning bush, and God says this, I've heard the cry of my people. I've seen their affliction. So God hears, God sees the affliction, and then he says, I'm coming to liberate them. God hears the afflictions of the people. The seeds of their rebellion, the seeds of disobedience, grew to a revolution. Sometimes we don't know which way to go. We don't know how to act. We don't know how to, how to live in this life that seems to be very contra- contrary to the way that God calls us to live. But God spells this out for us. Here's what it says in, in uh, Micah. I've shown you, O mortal, what is good and what the Lord requires. You act justly. You love mercy and you walk humbly with your God. We're faced with decisions. Which way do we go? How do we live our lives? We look at the lives of, of Shifra and Pua. What did they do? They acted justly. They loved mercy. And in doing so, they walked humbly with their God, and they started a revolution. I wonder what revolutions we can start with our lives today, with the decisions that we face What's the one seed where you could say, I'm going to honor God in this. I'm going to start a revolution. It might take years. I don't think Shifra and Pua saw what Moses did and came back 80 years later. They might not have been around. They might have. They were named once in Scripture. But they started the Exodus. And the Exodus is something that is still happening today because the Exodus happens with our lives and Christ takes us from our bondage and our slavery and sets us free.